the threats that we face in Colorado on the Colorado River affect all of Colorado, and it's not a west slope or an east slope issue. Hello, and welcome to CSU Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. And you can think about those reservoirs as a bank account, and that bank account has been drawn down uh, to the point where it is uh, depleted, and there's unfortunately no line of credit that we can draw on, no borrowing that we can do. Once that water is gone, it's gone. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, health, and sustainability, and learn about their current work and their career journeys. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, Associate Vice Chancellor of the CSU Spur Campus, and I'm honored to be joined today by Jim Lockhead, CEO and Manager of Denver Water, which supplies drinking water to Denver and the surrounding suburbs. Prior to his tenure at Denver Water, which began in 2010, Jim held a variety of positions, including working in private law practice on natural resource issues in the U.S. and globally, and as the executive director of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. Jim was the Colorado governor's representative on interstate Colorado River operations and served on the Colorado Water Conservation Board and the boards of Great Outdoors Colorado, the Nature Conservancy, and the Colorado Conservation Trust. Jim has a bachelor's degree in environmental biology and a law degree from the University of Colorado. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Jocelyn. It's good to see you again. Likewise. So as I was reading through your bio, there was a distinct theme around natural resources and particularly water, not surprisingly, which has led you to your role at Denver Water, and that's where I'd like to start. Can you tell us a little bit more about Denver Water? Denver Water is the state's largest water utility and oldest water utility. We serve about 25% of the state's population, but we only use about 2% of the state's water. So we're big, but we don't have a big footprint, and we do everything we can to minimize that that footprint across the state and across the West. We serve a million and a half customers, uh, both in the city and county of Denver, as well as surrounding suburbs. And we have really a vast, complex, and really amazing system. We divert about half of our water supply from the Colorado River, about half from the South Platte River. Uh, Our Colorado River supply comes from the Blue River near Silverthorne and Dillon. Water's diverted through the um, Roberts Tunnel uh, into the South Platte Basin. And then we also take water from Grand County uh, up near the Winter Park ski area. We bring water through the Moffat Tunnel uh, into four different treatment plants um, and one big brand new one, which is coming online um, early next year. Um, and a big network of conduits, pipes, mains that are incredibly complex, hard to maintain, and just about every day we have a main break and are flooding somebody's basement or something, but we try and prevent that. Sure, of course. Um, also, of course, it's very complicated providing drinking water for the largest metropolitan area in the state. And um, all of the the complexity that, that comes with that means that the organization itself is also quite complex. It looks like about 1,100 employees and um, covering more of the state than uh, just the front range, you have 4,000 square miles of watershed, right, that, that feed together to bring to bring water to the Denver Metro. So um, how do you manage some of that complexity? It's it, it's really an amazing business. Um, people turn on their tap, water comes out, and they don't think about it. Um, but we're heavily into the construction business. Uh, we do a lot of um, construction, both replacement and renewal and expansion of our system. 
Uh, as you mentioned, we have 4,000 square miles of watershed area. We have employees um, throughout the state uh, at outlying areas. Um, everything from billing to accounting to um, management operations, um, it's, it's really amazingly complex. Um, it's not like a business where you're producing widgets and selling them somewhere. Uh, it's really all facets of business and operations that are involved. Um, I've been doing this for 13 years, and I'm still learning aspects of this system. A lot of our employees have been with Denver Water for decades. There's a lot of institutional knowledge, and it's kind of common folklore that you're not really an employee until you've been there for 20 or 30 years. Understood. So uh, they, you learn a lot every day in a, in a system that's that complicated and that complex. How does, how does Denver Water and, and the water system here in the city compare to other major metropolitan areas? What do we do differently and, and what's basically the same across utilities? One of the things that we're proud of that we have done is we've instituted uh, a continuous improvement uh, process. We've um, employed the lean um, technology, which was developed originally by Toyota. Um, it's designed to increase efficiency by eliminating waste in every process that we do. The idea is to deliver water at the lowest possible cost to our customers while still maintaining the integrity of our system. And so we'll have employees do what are called rapid improvement events where we, they will come and look at a particular process, both the process itself as well as upstream and downstream impacts. They sp actually spend a week with that process doing rapid experiments about asking questions, why do we do it this way? Can we do it differently? Um, they do experiments to actually do it differently. And by the end of the week, we're implementing changes to that process to increase efficiency. We're very metric-driven. Um, we have a number of uh, measurements of our operations, and we're constantly looking at how we can improve. I think that we're one of the leading utilities um, in the country, if not in the world, in terms of our implementation of um, this continuous improvement ethic. Um, we're also deeply committed to stewardship of the resources that supply our system. Uh, as we talked about the 4,000 square miles of watershed area, a lot of that's a natural, national forest. A lot of it has been um, devastated by catastrophic wildfire. Uh, a lot of it is a uh, forest area that is subject to beetle kill, uh, overgrowth. And so we're engaged with the United States Forest Service on a program called Forest to Faucets, whereby we are both investing in treatments um, to the forest that will prevent um, damages caused by catastrophic wildfire. We're involved with um, a number of watershed projects, stream improvement projects uh, in, in the West Slope. Um, and it's our ethic that we need to sustain the water supply that we depend on, not only today, but for our customers 50 or 100 years from now. And so that means protecting that environment and the watersheds that sustain our system. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about where the water comes from. So that 4,000 miles of, of square miles of watershed means that a drop of water that falls in that area, whether it's a raindrop or a snowflake, then makes its way eventually through some of the tunnels that you mentioned and diversions from one part of the state, the western slope or the western part of the state to the front range, for example. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, 
where does this water come from? And you talk about people turning the tap on and not realizing all of the things that, that go into it. Um, where does that come from? What uh, pressures or what risks do we have around that supply? Denver is really in a unique place. I mentioned that we get half of our water supply from the Colorado River Basin. Uh, we're at the headwaters, obviously, of the Colorado River. That river supplies seven states and the country of Mexico. We also derive our water supply from the South Platte Basin. Um, the South Platte Basin flows into the Missouri and ultimately the Mississippi. So we're right at the focal point of literally the entire Western United States, and we're impacted by everything that happens from climate change to drought to uh, political issues to uh, endangered species management. We're involved in endangered species protection programs, both in the Colorado River, River Basin and in the South Platte um, Basin. And so literally everything that happens across the West potentially impacts Denver water and the water supply to our customers. As a result, we are heavily engaged uh, in discussions uh, among states with the federal government about water management, uh, drought resiliency, um, watershed management, um, and um, it makes the job really interesting because it's not just running a, a, an operation, but it's being engaged in public policy and the politics of water. Yeah, and I think that might surprise people to understand that there is so much around policy and politics that is part of the work of a utility. Can you say a little bit more about that piece of it, um, and, and particularly the Colorado River conversations that have been so much in the news over the course of the last couple of years? Well, we can start right here in Colorado. All the peop most of the people in Colorado are on the eastern slope. Most of the water in Colorado is on the western slope. And so as a result, there's been this historic tension between the Western Slope and the Eastern Slope about diversions from the West Slope to the East Slope. I spent 35 years of my law practice in Glenwood Springs, and so I know all about the West Slope. Coming to Denver, uh, I brought that perspective here and have sought to create a bind, a bond between Western Colorado and Eastern Colorado, uh, particularly when it comes to interstate Colorado River issues. We're one state. The threats that we face in Colorado on the Colorado River affect all of Colorado, and it's not a West Slope or an East Slope issue. Um, so we've really tried to come together around that issue in particular as a state. The situation on the Colorado is literally at a crisis point. There are two major reservoirs on the, on the river, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And over the last 20 years, those reservoirs have been drawn down as a result of the worst drought in 1,200 years on the river. They've been drawn down to the point that in the next couple of years, it's possible that they could literally go dry. And yet, at the same time, the lower basin states, particularly California and Arizona, have continued uh, to use water and draw down those water supplies. In contrast, water users in the upper basin in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico um, have been limited by both hydrology and the operation of the prior appropriation system. Water rights are set by the date at which they are first used, and it's literally kind of a pecking order of who gets water based on the first use. And so even though the upper basin has, has been limited, 
um, the lower basin um, has continued to use the same amount of water. And you can think about those reservoirs as a bank account, and that bank account has been drawn down uh, to the point where it is uh, depleted, and there's unfortunately no line of credit that we can draw on, no borrowing that we can do. Once that water is gone, it's gone, and the results are going to be devastating. And so the economic impact, the environmental impact, the recreational impact are huge, and literally the water users uh, in each state are kind of looking at, at each other saying, who's going to give up what first? Before I give up something, well, maybe somebody else should give up something. And so that we're all kind of playing poker. And in the meantime, the reservoirs are dropping and dropping and dropping to these critical levels. The implications for Colorado are the potential for significant lawsuits and litigation, ultimately in the United States Supreme Court. When states sue each other, um, they sue each other in the United States Supreme Court. And that lawsuit would would take literally 10 or 20 years. We don't have 10 to 20 years to deal with this problem. And so that's the worst possible scenario. Um, probably the second worst or even, even the worst scenario is that uh, the river operates by the priorities that are established. The first priority on the river is, is Mexico. That's a national obligation. But within the United States, irrigation users in California have the first priority. And in fact, they use far more water than the entire upper basin combined. So there's a potential that if we hit that crisis point and the river operates by that priority, irrigators get their water first and cities literally go dry. Uh, because we're second um, in line. And that's obviously an untenable situation. It, it, it just cannot happen. And so there needs to be a solution that's brought in. Um, given where the states are today, it needs to be a solution that's brokered or imposed by the federal government. And the federal government has to date not done anything about it. So here we sit with proposals from six states for a solution and one proposal by California. And we've all put that in the, the lap of the Department of the Interior for them to um, decide what they want, what they're going to do. Well, so that's fascinating. And thank you for that uh, excellent description of what is a very complicated situation that has been unfolding over the last decades um, as the drought has has worsened. I think a, a lot of people are seeing much more about the Colorado River or hearing more about it in the general news, right? Not not even natural resources or water-specific sources. It's it's hitting the, the kind of mainstream audience's attention. So it's helpful to, to get a, an understanding of it. How optimistic are you? I, I heard you say that given where we are right now, the feds have to weigh in, right, where the states are. We've not been able to come to an agreement among the states without federal intervention. Um, how optimistic are you? And um, I guess another question might be, how could a, a Denver citizen or a Arizonan or um, someone living in Salt Lake City uh, contribute to this in, in order to, to try to help make a difference because their livelihoods and water sources depend on it? There, there's only one real solution, and that's to reduce uses in the basin to uh, be commensurate with how much water the river produces. Uh, we not only have to do that, but we have to cut even more in order to build back some of that bank account that we've lost in Lakes Powell and Mead. The size and scope of those cuts are enormous. The river 
over the last 20 years has uh, produced about an average of about 12 million acre feet a year. The federal government last year asked the states to uh, cut between two and four million acre feet. So a, a two to four million acre foot cut out of 12 million acre feet is a lot of water. We, we really, we, what we have in the basin is a grass problem. There is a lot of irrigated agriculture of alfalfa and forage crops that are used both domestically and also exported to the Far East. And yet the Colorado River only produces about 7% of the alfalfa used in the United States. So it's, it's not, even though it's, it's big from a water use standpoint within the Colorado River Basin, it's not terribly significant nationally in terms of how much uh, alfalfa is being produced. We also have a problem with grass in our cities. Bluegrass, turf grass has been prolific. And um, in fact, in, the, in our service area here in Denver, we've looked at what we call non-functional turf, which the easiest way to think about non-functional turf is um, grass that only sees a lawnmower. Nobody ever uses it. We just look at it. Think of uh, medians or um, other areas that you drive through Denver and you just see grass that's sitting there that nobody uses. Uh, we estimate there's some 6,000 acres of non-functional turf in our service area. If you multiply that by Phoenix and L.A. and Las Vegas, by the way, has done a tremendous job of reducing non-functional turf. But all the um, large municipalities in the basin, that can make a real difference. And so I think that we can all contribute not only through conservation, reuse, recycling, but also uh, simply by reducing demands in the system, both agriculturally and in our urban service areas. So you mentioned Las Vegas doing a good job of reducing the amount of non-functional turf that they have. Are, is that something that's in Denver Water Sites? In response to the Secretary's call for these deep cuts in use in the basin, we organized a group of municipalities to sign a memorandum of understanding. We've to date gotten some 35 different municipalities in the Colorado River Basin to sign on to this uh, MOU. It uh, commits us to enhancing our efforts toward conservation, redoubling our efforts toward recycling and reuse, and commits each of us to a 30% reduction in the amount of non-functional turf within our service areas. We also need to work with municipalities and with the state to make sure that new development uh, that occurs in Colorado doesn't incorporate that non-functional turf. So we're going to be embarking on a program to remove non-functional turf within our service area. We're starting with our own facilities. So if you see a pump station or a Denver water facility with some grass on it, um, within the next um, few years, it's that grass won't be there. It will be replaced by um, native vegetation. And that's, that's important as well. We can't just remove turf and, and kill our tree canopy, for example. The tree canopy in Denver is incredibly important from uh, an economic um, climate change as well as social um, aspect. We need to maintain the, those trees. We also can't re replace turf with rocks or concrete. It needs to be with uh, climate-appropriate native vegetation that is really actually incredibly attractive. And then we also need to be aware of underserved communities in our service area, a lot of um, which don't have functional turf, much less non-functional turf. And so we need to be making sure that we um, provide green landscaping, uh, again, climate-appropriate uh, in those underserved areas as well. 
And I think that's an area where we have some mutual interest, right? CSU has a horticultural program that's focused on things like this. And I, I think we're certainly interested in helping to um, make that transition be something that people are really excited about. Um, and I certainly am eager to replace the curb strip in front of my house that only sees my lawnmower and probably less often than it should um, with with something else um, that is appropriate for the climate that we're in and the changes that we're going to continue to see. So uh, I'd like to shift gears a little bit to talk about what a day in the life is like for you as the CEO and manager of the Denver Water. Can you talk us through uh, maybe a day or a week in the life? One of the great things I love about this job is is getting up. I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, So that keeps me on my toes. That having been said, we talked about the complexity of the operation of Denver Water. So we are in the process of uh, building a brand new state-of-the-art treatment plant on Highway 93 between Golden and Boulder. And the, the conceptualization of that plant, the planning for that plant, was a process that we went through that I was heavily engaged in. I challenged our team to attempt to build a water treatment plant that was off the electric grid. And the engineers looked at me like I was crazy. Um, they said, we shouldn't do that. We can't do that. And I said, well, why don't you try? So they went, uh, and instead of just building a, a standard treatment plant, they looked at how they could do that. And and today, that plant is, it is going to be hooked up to the electric grid, but the reason is that it's going to be a net energy producer. We're actually putting water, putting energy back into the, to the grid from that plant for the treatment of water. We built a... Uh, new state-of-the-art campus that is the most sustainable campus that's been developed in in Colorado. Our administration building is um, LEED Platinum, Net Zero Energy. Uh, We do rainwater capture. We treat our own wastewater within the building, reuse it for irrigation, toilet flushing. And the planning of that took several years. The permitting of that took several years. We're constructing uh, an enlargement to Gross Reservoir up in Boulder County. That process took about 20 years to obtain the the approvals necessary, including six years of negotiation with the Western Slope uh, on a landmark peace accord between Denver Water and the Western Slope about how how they could actually support and how environmental groups could support the enlargement of that reservoir. We are also embarking on a program to remove every lead service line within our system. Uh, We were engaged in complex negotiations with uh, the state health department and the EPA on our treatment processes. Um, Lead service, a service line is the line between the water main that's out in the street and your house. And that service line is not owned by Denver Water. It's owned by the homeowner. We have some 64 to 84,000 of those lead service lines, uh, and we know from the experiences in Flint and other um, communities around the country that those service lines pose a health risk um, to our customers. Public health is ultimately our primary responsibility. Um, And so we took it upon ourselves to reach an agreement with the EPA, whereby we committed uh, at no direct cost to our individual homeowners to replace every single lead service line within our system within a 15-year period. We're now three years into that program. Uh, We've successfully met every benchmark that the EPA has has given us under a a variance that they issued to allow us to do this. Um, We're not only removing the lines, but we're providing uh, pitcher filters to any home that uh, has a line or is suspected of having a line. 
We've changed our, the treatment of our, of our water, which is a separate, very complex process um, to provide better protection. And we've embarked on a really extensive community engagement program. Uh, the, we've created a, a national model for proactive uh, engagement in protecting public health uh, in removing these lines. We've also partnered with CSU uh, in the construction and development and now up and running hydro building at the Spur campus, which we're terribly excited about. Uh, the, you, know, you mentioned uh, partnership with horticulture, but there are so many different partnerships between an urban utility um, and a land-grant university. Building the connection between watersheds and agricultural production, as well as the concepts of how water is used within our urban environment. Uh, we've located our brand new water quality lab at the Hydro Building. Uh, we're, we undertake about 200,000 water samples per year at that lab. And it's just a great, not only a fantastic facility, but uh, that lab is uh, a great opportunity to be in an environment with um, a great university and um, to engage in public education and research and innovation and uh, ultimately in, in broad public policy around water. Um, so the future is really bright for, for that partnership as well. So those are kind of a, a few of the major initiatives that, that I work on. We're also very committed to um, the development of our workforce and the leaders within the organization. So I'm very engaged in um, leadership programs, uh, we have a, a broad uh, DE&I initiative uh, within Denver Water. Um, and so all the day-to-day the -day operations, um, I'm involved in um, several national boards um, that um, we engage with uh, other um, water utilities across the country in learning and, and collaboration. Uh, we're engaged at the legislature. We're engaged um, on, uh, in Congress on national legislation, uh, regulatory issues at the, both the state and the federal level. So um, every day is filled with, um, you know, all kinds of different and unique and fun challenges. Yep. I heard you say um, policy and legislative work, construction, negotiations, um, water quality testing, um, some more construction, um, and, and not to mention the management of um, the uh, the core function of what you do, which is with the existing facilities to, to deliver water to, to um, the metro area. So sounds um, diverse and like quite a lot of work. Um, and, and that's, I'm sure, part of the reason you have an 1,100-person team, right, to, to, to manage to do all of that. Um, as you and and we're also th uh, thrilled about the partnership at Spur that you mentioned, and of course I think the um, we don't even know what will come out of that yet, right? We're excited about the things we do know we're going to do together around education, particularly for young people, um, and conversations around uh, policy. But I think there are are um, with us cohabitating in that space. I think a lot of opportunity that we don't even can't can't even conceive of yet around research and innovation and ways that we can be um, mutually beneficial. And we're really thrilled about it. And thanks so much for your partnership over the last, gosh, it's been what, seven or eight years. Um, so as you know, that at Spur, we are focused on um, inspiring kids to think about careers they're not currently aware of. 
maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the more surprising careers that are within Denver Water or, you, or the utility space. What, what might we not know about that would be of interest to young people today? Well, you mentioned construction. So obviously engineering is a, is a big aspect of what we do. But um, it's also an incredibly diverse operation. So if you're into computers or uh, GIS or accounting, um, watershed management, recreation, legal, water supply analysis, um, any kind of uh, technical uh, career, um, we have all kinds of operations from the, the people who are uh, in the street at 2 o'clock in the morning when it's 30 below working on a main break, um, incredibly dedicated uh, people to emergency responders. I, you can almost think of any career, and there's probably an opportunity at a water utility uh, for that career. With that, let's let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you were born in California. And uh, maybe you can say a little bit about what, what it was like to grow up in California. And then you came here to Colorado for uh, college. Is that correct? Right. I grew up in Southern California and um, really love of the water, love of the, of the ocean. Um, spent a lot of time in the ocean. Was a surfer and Southern California guy and... Um, that really spurred both my interest in water and, and the environment. Came to um, University of Colorado where I graduated uh, with a degree in biology and talk about careers. I wanted to be a, a high school biology teacher, but I did not do so well on the GREs for biology. Um, so I was kind of despondent, not knowing what I was going to do next. And on a whim, decided to take the LSATs to go to law school. And so that worked out okay. Uh, so here I am. And so uh, I found a different path. Uh, I had a different apt aptitude, maybe. Um, practiced law in Glenwood Springs um, for several years, representing uh, small municipalities as water council, ditch companies, um, developers, um, and then was um, engaged in the water Co Colorado Water Conservation Board, was tapped by Governor Romer to become uh, the director of the uh, State Department of Natural Resources, which was an incredible job. Uh, the Department of Natural Resources oversees not only state water, but uh, public lands, Division of Wildlife, Division of Parks, mining. Um, it's just an incredibly diverse um, and fun job. Uh, after my stint there, I um, joined a, a Denver law firm, but I was still in Glenwood Springs. And began practicing law across the country, doing large, big river negotiations, um, mediation, really all over the United States. And um, But I, I missed the sense of mission and that comes with an organization. Um, we I had that at the Department of Natural Resources, but one of the great things about working at a water utility is there's a deep sense of mission of delivering to our customers every single day high-quality water at the right pressure, et cetera, at the right time, the right amounts, um, of responding to every situation that comes up and just um, doing that in the best way possible. That feeling uh, is almost a, a feeling of family, and it's almost kind of a first-responder mentality among, among everyone in the organization. 
And to have the pr- privilege to lead those people who are so dedicated to this is really a tremendous opportunity. And um, it's been just a wonderful experience. Probably the thing I, I'm most fulfilled by in, in this job is are the people that I work with and um, that sense of purpose and mission that they bring to work every day. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Um, that sense of mission, you are providing something that is necessary for people to live their lives and do their work um, here in, in the largest metropolitan area in the state and um, one of the larger uh, metropolitan areas in the, in, the, in the West. So I could imagine that that is quite fulfilling um, to uh, feel that every day you are con- you're sort of making the rest of our lives possible. Can you talk a little bit about um, – some have there been some other moments? So you mentioned also that the that the GRE wasn't as successful as the LSAT, so that sort of pointed you in a, in a specific direction, um, and uh, then you were appointed by the, by Governor Romer. So that also was a a bit of a pivot moment. Are there other uh, moments that were pivot moments or people that were particularly influential as you went from thinking about being a high school biology teacher to where you are now today? Well, I've I've always been interested in. Um, Again, the environment, uh, public policy, um, politics, and uh, for example, I was a I was an intern for Tim Worth when he was a senator, uh, or no, he was in Congress at the time, and so the the influence of of those people and and Governor Romer was really a, a tremendous influence on me because he not only allowed me to do what I wanted to do uh, to further the mission of the Department of Natural Resources, supporting that. Um, But he approached everything from the standpoint, not of politics, but of doing the right thing for the state of Colorado. Uh, We would sit in his office and he was always trying to think of what is best for the future of this state um, without regard to politics. Um, That was a time obviously quite different than today. He had a Republican legislature. We worked quite well with the Republican legislature. Obviously disagreements, but they uh, were, were hashed out. And again, it was always what, what is best. So that really was uh, a big influence on, on the way that I have approached my career and my job, particularly at Denver Water, because we're clearly not a political organization. We were, one of the great things about Denver Water is it was created uh, in 1918 under the um, city charter in the wake of uh, failed private water companies. Um, you, you know, you mentioned sustaining a great metropolitan area. These private water companies were competing with each other. There was flooding, there were water quality problems, there were water quantity problems. And the people of Denver created Denver Water uh, with this vision of a great city but was cre- it was created to be apolitical. We don't report to the city council. Uh, we report. I report to a board, five-member board appointed by the mayor, and we operate independently. We're part of the city, but we operate independently as an enterprise. And specifically, it was created so that we could have that long-term vision, not be subject to politics, um, and um, could do our job and do it well. That's great. And it sounds like Governor Romer was part of the influence of why that's important to you. The fact that you're working in a, in a place that is apolitical and has that long-term view. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've always felt that in, in the natural resource field, everybody who's involved in natural resources, whether it's in, in research or uh, 
the political policy realm, we're always thinking 50, 100 years from now and how we can meet the challenges of climate change um, and the environment um, going forward for future generations. And it's um, a, a thinking that, that permeates Denver water as well. So with that long-term view in mind, you are actually wrapping your time up at Denver Water. You'll be leaving Denver Water here in the coming months. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you hope you're leaving behind there? What do you hope your legacy at Denver Water is? We've accomplished a tremendous amount um, during my, my tenure. I, I presided over it, but it's 1,100 people that are, that are working that, that – uh, have achieved, I think, so much in the last um, 13 years that I've I've been at Denver Water. I mentioned some of the construction projects that we've done. We've also created a. I also mentioned the the ethic of continuous improvement um, and measurement of what we do um, as kind of a leading practice um, in the water utility industry. Um, achieving that was not easy uh, in a culture that, frankly. Um, was, well, if it costs this much more, we can just raise rates and that's okay. Well, it's not okay because there are, uh, that's part of our mission is to keep our rates as low as possible, but also maintain the integrity of our system. And so how can we create a culture of service to our customers uh, and thinking about our customers in everything that we do uh, in terms of the cost, our service to them, making sure that that water supply is there. And there has been a real um, transformation internally within Denver Water over the last um, 13 years um, toward uh, that ethic of continuous improvement and customer service and sustaining the, cust- the communities that we serve um, and also um, the integrity of the environment that supplies our water. We just recently refreshed our strategic plan. When I came to Denver Water, we really didn't have a strategic plan. And now everything we do is tied to specific strategic objectives uh, of our plan. And um, so that plan um, will, I hope, continue to guide Denver Water um, going forward over the next several years. Um, And I hope that the next person, the next leader of, of Denver Water uh, can build on that and create an even better and, and greater organization. I feel that uh, the time every every CEO needs to pick an appropriate moment to step aside. And I think this is the appropriate moment for me because uh, we've accomplished so much. Everything is running really well, knock on wood. Um, and um, uh, it's a great opportunity for new thinking to come in and take us the next step step forward. I think so. Well, I know that you will be missed, um, not only at Denver Water, but across the city um, and and the state and across the American West. So thank you very much for all of your service. What will you do next? What's coming? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. Um, I definitely am not uh, retiring, um, so I won't be mowing non-functional turf or doing something like that. I will... um, We'll be looking for the for the next thing. Uh, obviously, something in water and natural resources, but uh, TBD. 
All right. You heard it here, folks. Jim Lockhead is looking for a job. Um, so uh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, just to uh, wrap us up, maybe you can tell us where um, we can find out more about Denver Water's great work. I assume Denver Water's website, but where else? Yep. Uh, denverwater.org. We are also on social media, so you can follow us on uh, whatever social media platform. I don't think we're on TikTok, but uh, uh, whatever social me- media platform um, Great. Thanks. So um, you touched on this, but my spur of the moment question for you is um, you mentioned you wanted to be a high school biology teacher. But uh, aside from that, is there any other career path that you could have seen yourself take? Well, one of the career paths, well, I mentioned um, my love of the ocean. So I had this uh, dream of um, being a marine biologist and um, working at say Scripps or Santa Barbara and spending a lot of time uh, in the water studying the ocean. Amazing. That sounds wonderful. It's not too late. Um, that could be my next job. There you go. Marine biologist. Yeah. Um, I love it. That's wonderful. It takes you back to the, to the biology root of, of everything too. So, um, well, thank you very much, Jim Lockhead. Our pleasure and honor to have you on Spur of the Moment today. Thank you very much and good luck in the next chapter. Thank you. Good to be with you. The CSU Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Kevin Samuelson, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, be well.